1: Casey, how many conversations do you think you have had since the 2016 election about how internet platforms and social media are hurting democracy?
2: (laughs) I mean, it's sort of become the background chatter to every conversation I have about my beat.
1: Casey Newton writes the newsletter Platformer, and he's been reporting on tech and the internet for years.
2: You know, when I started covering these issues... I don't think the, the sort of intersection of tech and democracy had not been a particularly hot, hot topic. And then in the wake of the election, it was sort of all anyone wanted to talk about. And it sort of felt like we spent the five years after the election just sort of reliving it every day.
1: It's something we've covered extensively on this show. The idea that social media algorithms are primed to amplify content that is outrageous or offensive, to spread misinformation about COVID-19 or conspiracy theories about the 2020 election. Or to be used to incite events like the Capitol riots.
2: I think it's pretty common now in the Twitter timeline to say to see people taking it as a given that Facebook, Twitter, YouTube are all working together to destroy democracy. I have long argued that it is more complicated than that because for every you know 2016 election where you have Russians interfering, you also have. The Me Too movement, you have Black Lives Matter, you have gay marriage, just like stuff that was playing out on social networks that was able to rally a lot of people around those causes, arguably to create a progressive effect.
1: In Ukraine, Casey says, we're watching a small country use the internet as a force multiplier.
2: And so now here you have the situation in Ukraine where, once again, we're seeing how uh, people sort of on the margins, right, the underdog in this uh, war against Russia, are able to appeal directly to a large global audience and rally the entire Western world to their side.
1: Today on the show, Casey argues that in this war, social media is helping defend democracy
2: if you think that social networks can only be used for bad, then I think the situation in Ukraine should give you reason to reflect.
1: I'm Lizzie O'Leary, and you're listening to What Next TBD, a show about technology, power, and how the future will be determined. Stick with us. Before the invasion started, you know, there's this vaunted Russian disinformation machine. Were you expecting it would own the internet narrative of what was happening?
2: To some extent, yes. You know, the conversation about the Russian uh, information operation since 2016 has been to lionize it. And there was this assumption that if an invasion happened, it would be coupled with some sort of mass manipulation campaign. I think we really have to credit the Biden administration for calling Putin's shot in advance because it just made it exponentially harder for Putin to gain any ground in in controlling this narrative, right? When when the the Biden administration is saying this guy's about to invade a country for no reason and then he does it, very hard to launch a misinformation campaign that's going to change anybody's minds.
1: How is Russia gonna get their message out?
2: Up until... Three or four days ago, there was a sort of easy answer to this question, which is they would get it out on RT and Sputnik, right? So in 2005, they start this uh, TV channel called uh, RT, formerly Russia Today, and they start building up presences on all the major platforms. And they're really clever about it. It's not just 24 7 Russians complaining about Yankee imperialist pigs, it's, uh, you know, crazy weather videos and cute animals and other viral junk that they're putting on YouTube and other platforms in order to attract you know, what we would call an organic audience. And then every once in a while, you know, you just slip in that Americans are capitalist dogs. And uh, over time, you're able to kind of build up your your propaganda machine. For years, these platforms have faced calls to remove these platforms entirely, or to at least make it harder for people to find them. The platforms resisted that for a long time. Um, starting in about 2017, they did start to take some measures. But then the invasion happened, and the leaders of Ukraine started tweeting Please get rid of these propaganda networks, which are all over Europe. You know, they're carried on the the Dish Network and DirecTV, right? It's like a sort of like shockingly mainstream, even if it doesn't have a huge audience. And finally, everybody started to act in concert, just as they have on so many things related to the invasion. And now you cannot find these channels on many uh, TV networks and services around the world. They have been pulled from the App Store and the um, Google Play Store. Uh, throughout Europe. Russia is not going to be able to use these to get its message out.
1: As we've all seen over the past week, Ukrainians have repeatedly used the internet to showcase the horror of Russian attacks. But they've also showed a kind of uncowed irrepressibility that plays particularly well on an internet always looking for viral moments. Like President Zelensky's cell phone videos from the street. Or the sailors at Snake Island reportedly telling a Russian warship, go fuck yourself. Or Ukraine's, frankly, sassy official Twitter account, which asked for donations in cryptocurrency and immediately raised millions.
2: The thing that we hate about the internet is that it is so big and it is so fast, right? And so if I want to say something terrible, I can reach a lot of people in a hurry with that. And yet that same dynamic is incredible for fundraising. When there is the, the biggest crisis in the world of the moment and you have the attention of most of planet Earth, you can raise an insane amount of money in a hurry, right? And so I'm somebody who worries about the lack of friction on the internet basically every day. And yet here is a case where it is clearly being used for good.
1: I do think we need to acknowledge that the ability of of regular people to show the horrors of war, right? They can do it on TikTok, on Telegram, on Instagram. But this is not the first social media war. People have been saying, oh, Ukraine. No, that was very much happening in Syria, but it didn't move international opinion and policy in the same way. In terms of what makes this different. There's the obvious question of, of, of race, but I also wonder if there's something in the way we are consuming social media now or in the way it's being deployed.
2: It's hard for me to think of something about the design of these systems that has changed fundamentally between Syria and Ukraine. I do think that there is a significant degree of racism in the way that we have been treating these stories. I also think that we just sort of allot our attention differently based on, in part, like the geopolitical importance of the question. And that's not a good thing, but I do think it's a reality.
1: Uh, On a practical level, though, like I, I wonder, listening to you talk about sort of engagement engines, if there's a self-fulfilling cycle there, right? So if you are maybe primed to follow that news and you are clicking on that content and you are maybe amplifying it and sharing it, does that then spin out to kind of boost it more and more?
2: I think it does. And, and you know, something something that I would say that I think is different here is to the extent that there was something novel in the, the social media dynamics Look at the Ukraine Twitter account, right? I mean, they're tweeting stuff like, what do you think of, like, Russia? Like, tag them, you know? They're posting memes. um, And they're calling on platforms directly saying, remove this from your app store, remove that, ban Russia from the internet, right? And so they've used Twitter for activism in a way that I cannot recall a- another mm. country or a- another group of freedom fighters doing. And 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 that I think just sort of speaks to the power of Twitter in particular to really focus that it's like a magnifying lens to just like focus the energy of the internet on a particular subject.
1: The major platforms have largely worked alongside Ukraine and Western governments or acquiesced to their demands. Facebook restricted access to RT and Sputnik. Twitter has added state media labels to their links. Google and Apple have disabled live traffic data, so it can't be used for military targeting.
2: I write about these platforms more like they're quasi states than they are corporations because they're just so big, you know, they have like billions of users. Um, They just, they're, but they're borderless. And so I think they have to practice diplomacy like any other state. And essentially what we've learned is that they are aligned with the Western international order. And it makes sense. Like these businesses only exist because of the rule of law because of, democracy and the right to self-determination we shouldn't find it unusual that they are aligning themselves with with um, those groups. You know, uh, more practically, they're aligning themselves with everyone with the power to to regulate them. Right. Um, th- now, there's an asterisk on that, because Russia has been trying aggressively to regulate them and has been trying to prevent them from taking some of the measures that they've done. But I think it's fair game for American companies to say, when there's an attack on an, a Western democracy on one of our allies, we're going to do largely what the government asks us to do to aid in the the resistance.
1: There's another question for for tech companies that have employees in Russia or do business there. It's called the landing law. And I wonder if you could explain kind of what that is and and the quandary it puts some of these companies
2: in. Yeah. So there's this new trend among authoritarian regimes, although it's not just authoritarian regimes, that says if you want to operate in our country, you're going to have to incorporate a local business here that has a physical office and you're going to have to designate a local representative that we can complain to if we Find something that we don't like on one of your platforms. In practice, what this means is that there is now a person who can be physically intimidated if the government doesn't like what they see. You know, we've already seen this to some degree in India, where like the SWAT teams are raiding the offices of Twitter because uh, the Modi government didn't like a label that had been placed on a tweet. Um, and you have now something very similar in Russia, which is called the landing law. And the whole idea is they want to be able to pressure uh, these platforms into doing their bidding, um, no matter what it is. And so last November, when Russia had elections, there was an app that helped people coordinate their votes against Putin. Um, You know, the idea was instead of splitting our votes between many candidates, this app would figure out who you would cast your vote for to maximize the chance of um, sort of gaining ground against Putin. And Putin insisted that platforms remove this app from the App store and initially they resisted, but then they went out and he intimidated all of their employees you know and threatened them with jail or worse. and lo and behold, those apps got removed from the app store. So that's a really scary precedent to me, the idea that you know you're you're threatening to physically injure someone in order to get apps removed from app stores, but that's the world we're living in now.
1: Do you think any of this, the the landing law, the intimidation around the app store, does it make these companies reassess doing business in Russia? It's a huge market.
2: I was talking with um, a sort of high level platform executive about this question last year, and they were saying that journalists always approach this as a binary question, right? Like you're either there or you're not. And if then, if a country does one bad thing, you should pull out and really stick it to them. But pretty when big you do bad that, thing. I agree. Listen, I agree. I agree. But. The flip side of that is that the moment that you do that, to the extent that your services are used by journalists, they're used by human rights workers, nonprofit organizations, members of the resistance, rival uh, politicians, you're taking away those tools and services and infrastructure. Hmm. So could you maybe do more good by finding a way to remain? So you know there are a lot of people at at the big platforms who feel like to the extent that they can do that dance and remain in the country – they can do the most good. And, you know, I think if you contrast Russia with China, Russia has much worse control over its internet, right? It hasn't built up nearly the same infrastructure to surveil people, to censor people, which means that, you know, in practice you could probably get much better information on YouTube, for example, than you could on Russian state media. And, you know, if you want Russians to have credible independent media at a time where, you know, the the day that we're recording this, like all of these independent um, media outlets in uh, Russia are just saying that they they have to shut down because, you know, Russia has basically declared them illegal. YouTube might be the best shot that that many average Russians have for, for getting independent media.
1: When we come back, how Ukraine and the Arab Spring are connected. Listening to Casey talk, it was hard not to think about the Arab Spring and how, for a moment, it felt like the world was connected in a good way, Like Twitter and Facebook were giving activists a degree of power they didn't have before. But then that moment ended.
2: The Arab Spring is such an important moment in the history of the platforms because it is where they got their moral certainty that what they were doing was uh, good for the world and that if they could reach as many people as possible in the world, they could do a maximum amount of good. And then what happened is that a lot of uh, strongmen saw what had happened during the Arab Spring and they said, well, we're actually going to use these tools for evil and we're going to get really good at it. Um, and then they did. And then, you know, all of the like pro-democracy organizers had a much more difficult time. But, you know, I think there's an interesting connection between the Arab Spring and the Ukraine, which is like they're both one-sided information wars, right? Like in the Arab Spring, you know, you weren't seeing a bunch of strongmen on on Twitter being really clever <laughs> with their right. tweets. Mubarak uh, was
1: not out there tweeting.
2: Exactly. And so the, the the pro-democracy forces essentially had Twitter to themselves. And, and you're seeing a, sa- a similar thing here.
1: Have you talked to people inside the big platforms about what is happening and, and how their content and, and actions are contributing to it?
2: Yeah, so in the past week, I have spoken with folks at Google and Facebook and Twitter about what's going on. And what they have signaled to me is that uh, they they really want to help. Like, like whatever they can do w- with their platforms, they want to. There are some practical questions. There are some um, fears that they have about, for example, removing RT and Sputnik from their services completely. They're waiting uh, to take cues from the Biden administration. So basically, if the Biden administration asks them to do something, they're going to be much likelier to do it than if they just sort of have to like guess what the right move is. But they're they're very um, committed to doing what they can to, to help Ukraine via their platform policies.
1: We talked a little bit about how these platforms, you know, can be viewed as nation states, right? They're huge. Do you think this conflict changes at all the the relationship between these platforms and the U.S. or the EU, you know, places that have been trying to rein them in and regulate them?
2: I think it's been a moment for the platforms to say, uh, "Look at the good we can do. You want us in the world? We can." help fight for freedom, right? Like Mm. that's been the message they want to send. The platforms have had such a rough half decade that any moment where they can try to take a leadership position and try to do something that regulators will praise them for, they're very excited about. So I think they've seen this as that moment. And, you know, frankly, like none of them have gone rogue with their policies. Nobody's getting creative. Everybody is sort of following each other's lead. And the lead is coming from the the US government and from like the EU and the the, the UK. So I would say that this has shown the degree to which they are not like nation states. Like in, in this case, they really just are acting like corporations in wartime that are, you know, trying to support the domestic politics.
1: Casey Newton, thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Casey Newton writes the newsletter, Platformer. That is it for the show today. TBD is produced by Ethan Brooks. We're edited by Tori Bosch. Alicia Montgomery is the executive producer for Slate Podcasts. TBD is part of the larger What Next family. And it's also part of Future Tense, a partnership of Slate, Arizona State University, and New America. And I want to recommend that you go back and listen to Wednesday's episode of What Next. It helped me understand Vladimir Putin a lot better. We will be back on Sunday with another episode. I'm Lizzie O'Leary. Thanks for listening.